This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his painstakingly researched and splendid new book, Sculpting the Self, Muhammad Farooq charts and examines the multiplicity of ways in which the self and its moral flourishing have been discussed, debated and examined in the Muslim intellectual tradition. The remarkable aspect of this book, though, is that he does so in close and extensive conversation with understandings of the self in Western philosophy, Indic thought, and even neuroscience. Philosophically dense, but yet eminently accessible, this book is a landmark publication in the field of Islamic studies and the study of religion more broadly. Here now is my conversation with Professor Muhammad Farooq. Hello, Mohammed. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network. It is a pleasure to have you on our show, and uh, congratulations on producing this uh, uh, really one-of-a-kind volume. I would say um, uh, it is uh, an incredible exercise of philosophical uh, density, which brings together a number of different thinkers and traditions. It's the kind of book that you that 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 will leave you a bit intellectually uh, enriched and uh, uh, quite uh, uh, overwhelmed uh, uh, because of its brilliance. So great to have you on the show. We have a tradition on the New Books Network, Muhammad, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, I was wondering if you could briefly share with our listeners a bit uh, something about your journey, how you became a scholar of Islam. Sure. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. And thank you so much also for this very kind words about my humble book and and also i want to also thank you con- congratulate you on your book uh, which also received a pr- prestigious award uh, so thanks for that as well i personally learned from your book as well and your research in general and yes i'm looking forward to having also a great conversation and uh, so yeah <laughs> talking about my own journey to islamic studies it's quite uh, it's not the typical i suppose because when i was studying uh, I was under, under I was an undergraduate student, so I was in London. I was studying economics at the University of London, and at, at that time, about uh, I think twelve, thirteen years ago, I never thought I would end up in academia. Actually, write a book on Islam and selfhood and all of this because I had other plans and other radically different career plans. To put in a simple word. And actually, my father is a professor. He's a professor of mathematics. But for some reason, I never wanted. I always felt like teaching and this kind of curious, kind of boring and so forth. But, you know, that's how life is. And I'm I'm actually very glad that I kind of made that very um, audacious career change, I would say. Um, So when I was studying economics and I was studying special, I was interested in stock markets and all of these things, especially it was because in 2008, uh, as you know, uh, there was this great financial crisis that took place, and everyone was worried. Everyone was beginning to question, you know, all of these different economic models that kind of failed to predict, you know, what was going on. So as I was studying all this, thinking about all this, and also thinking about the big picture, I was just wondering at one point whether, when we have all, when we kind of, uh, when we come up with all of these different quantitative. Mo- econometric or just simply economic models, whether we can simply kind of talk about them without taking into consideration some conception of human subjectivity, because whatever happens in the external world, including the economic sphere, it's ultimately the actions of human actors. But 
these quantitative models usually would ignore anything that smack or quali qualitative factors, although there are sometimes some exceptions, like Robert Schiller, who is the one exception, the Yale uh, trained economist, who did talk about psychological factors. Anyway, as I was kind of deeply thinking about the, the idea of human subjectivity being the kind of decisive factor in all of this, I felt like you know there's something deeply unsatisfactory with the paradigm itself, the overall arching focus on you know quantity and so forth. And I felt like you know when you have a degree on, on one of these subjects, economics or even physics, you know the so-called queen of the sciences the, these days, you actually end up with a kind of rather narrow vision of the world at the end of the day. So I just felt like I need to explore humanities, I need to explore religion, philosophy, culture, and also from a different perspective, because I went to an, an English school and I completed my O-levels, A-levels, and I learned a great deal about West, a little bit about Western history and so forth. But I felt like, you know, one needs to kind of look at these things, uh, look at the world, maybe from other cultural perspectives. So I thought I would go to Iran actually go for like with no, with no intention of coming back in a way, like maybe settle in Iran, something like that. I would learn Arabic, Persian. I knew some Arabic, but kind of learn it, learn, learn it so that, you know, I, I'm able to explore the Islamic intellectual tradition in depth, uh, et cetera. So the, I eventually, after my degree, I did end up in Iran. I spent three years completing eventually a master's degree in Islamic philosophy and mysticism, studying, uh, in philosophical mysticism, Islamic philosophy, theology, and various other Islamic sciences. And that's how, at one point, friends told me to also apply for a PhD in the States. And I applied for a PhD at Berkeley and came to Berkeley and eventually wrote my dissertation on selfhood and subject formation in Islamic thought. Wonderful. Um... Well, I think that introduction will be very useful for listeners as they explore the book, both in our conversation and also in terms of uh, reading the book itself. I thought perhaps we can begin the book. It, the theme is, of course, the question of self and selfhood, which is a really massive theme, but you interrogate it in, in, in a very capacious and extensive fashion. Um, I thought perhaps in the beginning I could ask you about a category or a sort of um, uh, um, one might call it a conceptual sort of orientation that guides you throughout this book, what you call, very intriguingly, you called the spectrum theory, the spectrum theory of selfhood. Uh, tell our listeners what you mean by that, the spectrum theory of selfhood, and why this category is useful to you in terms of the kind of argument you make about selfhood uh, in this book. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's definitely the central question in the book, uh, so if you think about simply the word self, uh, you'd perhaps agree with me that it's perhaps the most commonly used uh, word uh, in English language. I mean, every day, in our everyday conversations, everyone from whatever background uh, they might come from, uh, they would, at some point in different, different points in, in time, they would use the word self. And yet, when you think about what it means uh, philosophically and kind of in a scholarly way, you you look at different definitions and conceptions provided by different philosophers. You see kind of all you know, it, like all kinds of disagreements to the point that there are philosophers, uh, as you know, like Nietzsche, um, uh, Nietzsche, and then mo more recent philosophers like uh, like Daniel Dennett, Anthony Kenny, and even Hume. They would think they would say that it's a kind of mistake to even posit something like a self. There is no self. They would kind of deny that is a self. On the other hand, there are other philosophers of Kurt and psychologists, like William James, uh, Carl Jung, and Gail, more recently Galen Strawson, or phenomenologists such as Zahabi. They would say that you know you, there is of course a self. Otherwise, and nothing would make sense. Every conversation presupposes a self and something. So I thought of giving this elephant analogy, like it's, why is it that, you know, when it comes to different philosophers and also when it comes to different disciplines, you look at what people mean by self and you see, like, it's like almost they're talking past one another. And it's almost like, uh, it's, you know, the like blind man in that female famous, you know, analogy of, you know, blind man trying to figure out 
what is an elephant and, and they touch different parts of the body. And then when they're asked, what did you find out? They say, oh, I, you know, it's a side or it's a tusk, you know, different parts of the elephant. And, and they think that's the elephant, but that's not the elephant in itself or its totality. So something similar is happening with the, with the self as well, even though it's such a central category in almost all disciplines, all the way from neuroscience to psychology, to anthropology, to religious studies, selfhood, subjectivity, you, you see this, and Islamic studies is no exception. And yet, uh, when you're just at the level of definition, you see that there are all kinds of disagreements with something, there's no self, some yes, but again, you know, there's no kind of common, common overlap. So you end up thinking whether, you know, it's at all a meaningful category. So after studying, when I have realized all that, especially when it comes to let's say Islamic study, which is my uh, area of specialization, you, uh, I'm sure you notice the word self everywhere. And, and people, you, people think this is a kind of simple translation of the term nafs or sometime uh, uh, hud in, in Persian, but there are lots of other terms. And they don't for a second question that whether uh, it, it may not, it, it's not just a question of just one-on-one, one-to-one, translate correspondence in terms of translation uh, with, well, nafs does translate into self, but it can mean a lot of other things and there can be a lot of other words. So anyway, I was confronted with this methodological issue um, that, you know, there, there's a bewilder, bewildering variety of terms in Islamic, various Islamic languages, Arabic, Persian, uh, Urdu, and other languages. And they all seem to be talking about what we would call selfhood and subjectivity today. And again, people think selfhood might mean just one thing. Uh, and that's, again, a kind of common misconception. And it, it, it never meant just one thing, nor in our time, nor in pre-modern times. So I thought, you know, there has to be a kind of this foundational study to overcome this methodological barrier. And, and, and I found that, you know, once I've kind of gone through the source te- texts themselves, I realized it's a matter of finding I mean, after a lot of philological uh, trial and error and stuff, I, I eventually came to the conclusion that uh, you have to find common connotations of various Islamic terms like nafs, that anania, sometimes even nafs, and all of these terms, and, and see whether they have a kind of common, uh, connot- they have common connotations uh, which can be framed in terms of a spectrum. And I used the analogy from physics, you know, different, different kinds of spectrum, continuous, uh, discontinuous, etc. But if you think of it as something like a spectrum, then you are not worried too much. There are some technical issues, perhaps I shouldn't go through here, go, going to them right now. But if you think of it as a spectrum concept, then one, the, the problem that we face with respect to the word self, like there are all these contradictory conceptions sometimes, can be perhaps overcome. And that's what I try to do. I, I make a distinction between kind of descriptive versus normative conceptions, and most people don't even see that, and that's part of the problem. And the other pr- uh, problem is that they don't see that it's a multidimensional concept. And that is actually directly from the source texts themselves. When you read Avicenna, Mullah Sonra, Shavaliullah, and many other people, they actually talk about the self in terms of being in terms of a multidimensional entity. So, you know, this descriptive and normative dimension uh, dimensions further divide into biophysiological, socio in my own model, sociocultural and cognito experiential, and then uh, ethico spiritual, and, and so on and so forth. And I found it a very useful category of analysis to talk about the self in an all-comprehensive manner, because it does seem to be the central focus in many of these philosophers and, and Sufi philosophers, and, and perhaps other people also. Uh, so that was very helpful. But there are also other kind of uh, global perspectives involved, I would say. So maybe I can just briefly mention them. So when, now beyond the kind of Islamic studies and methodological issues that we face and so forth, uh, there are also issues with how we understand the self today, because it's ultimately intimately related to the question of human flourishing, meaning in life, in spirituality, etc. Now, since the Enlightenment, um, and there is that you know, there's this kind of Eurocentrism that's kind of all over as we kind of observe again and again, and people tend to define everything, including the self, in terms of the values of science. 
And there is also a kind of reductionism that's in place. You know, people often would kind of locate you know human nature simply inside the self nucleus, and and, and because it, as if it's can it can be reduced to you know biological entity, biological mechanisms, etc. Uh, while forgetting that when it comes to our, you know, labor, social role, and moral and spiritual values, um, it cannot simply be kind of explained if we just kind of try to explain self through kind of reductionist, various reductionist paradigms and so forth. So I felt like there is something uh, that one can contribute from coming from the grounding oneself in the Islamic tradition, but at the same time drawing on various other traditions because Islamic tradition itself is, it's not a kind of, as you know, like it, it draws historically drew from Greek, Indian, Persian tradition and so forth. So there, there's this, uh, so I also had the intention of kind of overcoming Eurocentrism. And I feel like in our kind of globalized uh, world, I would say global post-enlightenment world, uh, it's, uh, I personally feel like we need to embrace a kind of what I call epistemic pluralism. Like uh, we have to recognize that fundamental questions of philosophy, uh, including selfhood, have been addressed by major cultures, and that there there are multiple valid uh, paradigms, epistemological frameworks to address uh, the questions of truth, knowledge, and being. So yeah, so there are kind of several you know aims at work, and I felt like spectrum theory kind of helps me to address all of this. Terrific. Uh, you know the. Major strength of this book uh, is the kind of really complex and detailed readings that it conducts of uh, so many different uh, Western, uh, not only Western and Muslim, in fact, but you even go into Indic traditions, etc. I'll come to that yes. uh, in a moment. But maybe for the benefit of our listeners, uh, to sort of for them to try to understand some key categories in this book. When I was thinking about this interview and you know what kinds of questions I might ask you. I sort of thought maybe it might be useful for our listeners if I have you uh, talk about, if I ask you about some broad categories and then have you go in the direction that you would most like to go. So what, what, two other categories that are central to this book is, which comes up in the next chapter of the book, what you call the paradox of self-knowledge. And you propose and then you sort of describe or you know one category that is central uh, in terms of the kind of resolution you offer to this uh, paradox of self-knowledge, what you call non-reflective uh, self-knowledge. I was wondering if you could explain these two categories, the paradox of self-knowledge, non-reflective self-knowledge, and how do the two relate to each other, and how is it connected to the way you address this paradox? Right. So, I mean, these are very technical uh, kind of discussions, as uh, as you can see. So I'll try to be, I'll try my best. <laughs> and not to kind of um, meander into lots of details and too technic- you know, too much technicality, but I'll try my best to kind of explain in kind of simple terms. So talking about the paradox of self-knowledge first, uh, why, why do I think that there is a paradox involved? And, and, and so, it, so I'm trying to ask the question here, so we're talking about the self, but one basic epistem- epistemological question is how does the self uh, know itself? How do we know it ourselves, let's say? Kind of putting it in first-person terms, so I formulated this paradox, uh, which uh, if I trying to if I try to explain it, it would be like the following. So, so on the one hand, for example, the self must be known prior to everything else, since anything that we know uh, it presupposes a self for which it's known. Uh, I mean, we always say, I know this, I see this, or any cognitive X, that's kind of, that part is clear. So that's, you know, that's on the one hand, that's there. But on the other hand, for something to be known, it must be an object, which then leads to a paradox. And while everything is known through the self, the self itself remains forever unknown because the self or the subject can never be an object. So if you think about any act of cognition, it always involves two, two poles, the subject pole and the object pole. They have to be separate. If not, then it doesn't make sense to say, I know this, even I know myself, or I know a tree, I'm kind of listening to this. None of these things would make sense. There's the subject pole, the object pole, and the active cognition that connects the two. Um, but 
so when while this model works, when it can see everything else outside of us, like the, you know, and I say I know the tree, yes, and I know it as an object. But when I say I know myself, there's a there's a paradox, because the subject has to be a subject, uh, and and if the subject is, it cannot be subject and and the object at the same time, and that's the problem. And it's a very subtle point, and I feel like lots of philosophers, including modern and non-modern, they kind of don't see it, but there are others they see it. So to explain it perhaps a bit more, uh, when I say, when I'm talking about this kind of act of cognition and subject pole and object pole, so in the act of cognition, um, when it comes to the knowing subject, you could, you could say that this knowing subject stands for what I call uh, the performative I, which is established by its, um, by, by its epistemic authority to kind of act and or attend rather than kind of be acted or or uh, be attended upon. So you can also say that this uh, this state of the performative eye is also um, it, it's also what can be called pure first-person subjectivity, since nothing other than the eye can kind of participate in the realm of its epistemic acts. So um, every time I say I know myself, or I, I'm kind of I know yeah I know myself. There is already that separation between the I as a subject and the kind of myself as an object, as an it. So in the case of external object, it's easy to see. I know tree, I know this tree, for example, and the tree can be, is, you know, tree is the object and it's the it as opposed to the I. But something similar is also at work when we're trying to kind of reflectively know ourselves or make these statements based on reflections like turning our gaze over ourselves. So every time we do that, we actually objectify ourselves. And this objectivized image of the self is actually an it in relation to the pure subject. And, and so when we don't see that distinction, uh, of course, we, we don't notice it. But when, once we are aware that there is that distinction between I and it, like even my own my my own image of myself, my own I can be an it in relation to the in relation to the in relation to my I, which which is a subject. So uh, once you see that there is an I and it distinction, um, then you know the subject can never know itself. It seems according to this paradox, because every time we try to do it, we try to do it either through reflectively or through in, introspection. So maybe you know this is still abstract. Let me just try to explain this to an, to one kind of one example. So so we're we're trying to kind of introspectively perhaps know ourselves. And so what happens? So number the first thing you might say is um, uh, when I attend to myself, I'm kind of performing this act of introspection on myself. But this, as I said, this already implies an objectivation of the self which can be called the introspective self. And I'm, I'm kind of looking at myself, thinking, oh, I, I'm kind of introspecting myself, my own self. So this introspective self can be, can be kind of represented by, let's say, this Greek letter called theta. And you might say that self, which is doing the introspection, the real self, can be represented by some other letter. Let's say it's fine. So the phi and the theta, they are actually different because I'm able to kind of, kind of at least mentally posit the split between you know, my, my introspective self and my introspecting self. Now, in order to have self-knowledge, there must be a kind of complete identity between phi and theta. But how, how can one ascertain this identity? Uh, that's where the problem that, you know, arises. If I try to ascertain it through a further introspection, then I'll have kind of theta one, and then the challenge would be to affirm the identity between theta one and phi and theta. But then in order to affirm that identity, I'll need to carry yet another active, further active introspection and, you know, and, and so on and so forth at infinitum. So I argue that the only way you can avoid the infinite regress here is by asserting that we somehow know ourselves in an a priori, uh, non-objectifying fashion. Um, so I, we have kind of immediate self-knowledge uh, because the nature of the self uh, and, and the consciousness at its most basic level uh, are somehow united. 
uh, there is no separation. As soon as I, we try to kind of know it through reflection, introspection, we, we fail to ascertain it because we, we kind of lapse into the subject-object dichotomy. So that's where this category of non-objective, uh, non-reflective knowledge comes in. So it's very technical. So let's say, you know, it's un- easy to understand when you say we human beings possess reflexivity. We all have self-consciousness. We can turn our gaze on ourselves. That's That part is clear. But imagine there are those moments which people would call self-absorbed moments or dream moments when uh, moments like dreamless yes. sleep or states of intoxication, these kind of states where you are not reflectively kind of aware that you are experiencing something as in a state of dreamless sleep or when you're too focused watching something and there are moments you, you actually are not aware that you're watching something. It's only when they lapse in the attention, you come back. So those moments are actually moments when you are when you are not completely absent from yourself. Your consciousness is there in the background. That's why you're able to remember what you are watching, for example, if it's a movie that you are watching. Or even in a state of intoxication, a state of coma, there is some kind of background awareness. So I, I argue that in a, those moments clearly show that it's not just through reflection that we come to know ourselves or through introspection. There's another a priori, more fundamental way of knowing ourselves. And that's the non-reflective way of knowing ourselves, what I call non-reflective self-knowledge. And it's laden with all kinds of implications. Terrific. That was wonderful. Um... The next uh, chapter, you talk about uh, this idea of the uh, humane, humane uh, challenge from uh, David Hume, of course. Uh, humane challenge, I guess. Yes, yes, um, yes. So could you, could, you, could you explain to our listeners what, what this challenge entails? What does it mean? And again, uh, you talk about a way to sort of address this challenge or, I guess, meet or resolve this challenge, what you call the unity of self and consciousness. Uh, so I guess uh, a three-part question: What is this challenge? What are some of its limitations? And how does this unity of self and consciousness help us overcome or meet this particular challenge? Right. Uh, so again, it's a very interesting question. Uh, Hume is, of course, engaging Locke and Descartes and other philosophers uh, who came, who were his contemporaries or came before him. Uh, so the Humean challenge, in brief, is the idea that uh, what what we call self. Uh, as a substance or even as an entity, it's an illusion. There is no self. It's it's rather you know always a question a question of the bundle of perceptions uh, that kind of uh, one that one experiences whenever one kind of tries to kind of discover the self or think about the self. So it's it's what we call self is actually a constant stream of fluctuating experiences. So he famously says, "Oh, I'm taking." I'm taking a look at my, I'm kind of taking an intimate look at myself. And then what all I see are all these fluctuating experiences, you know, sometimes love, sometimes hate, sometimes I feel hot, sometimes I feel light, this and that. So I don't see any self and so forth. So uh, so where is this self that people are talking about? There, There is no self. Uh, so, but Hume, Hume does not notice that the moment he makes this statement that, uh, when I enter most intimate, intimately into m- what I call myself, he's already kind of objectifying himself. What I was talking about before, like there is that distinction between I as, as pure subjectivity and something that is subject at, 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 that is attending uh, as opposed to being attended or acting as opposed to being acted. So he's already kind of falling prey to the I eat distinction that you know, I just mentioned earlier. So when he says, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, what did they say? What did they say? When I enter most intimately into what I call myself, this myself is already an it in relation to the kind of pure I, the subject itself. He's already object. So he's not seeing that. So the whole problem comes down to, it boils down to the idea of kind of, we're, you know, he's trying to, the self is the subject. It has to be the subject, as I said earlier. But he's trying to look for the self as an object, and it would inevitably result in a failure because you know it was not to be found. Uh, how can you find it? Because it's always the subject. <laughs> so I mean, there are lots of I, I kind of attack it in the book from lots of different angles. But something perhaps uh, I can mention. Uh, so 
if there is no self to begin with, how is it that he could have, he is able to report to us uh, in a selfless way? Like if there was no underlying subject when he was making that claim, how is it that he is even how he is even able to report to the world that there is no self? In, in other words, how how could he how could he have reported his data, his argument in a kind of quote unquote selfless way? Because the moment you make any such a statement, already presuppose an underlying subject that experiences all of these fluctuations, perceptions, and so forth. So Hume, I mean, perhaps he was he did feel like his argument was not fully sound. So there are statements at the end of the treatise at the appendix um, where he does seem to kind of intimate that uh, maybe uh, there, there's something more to what he was arguing ar- earlier. But regardless, his arguments here that you know there is no self and it's always a kind of fluctuating stream, it's kind of self-contradictory. And uh, so that's the human challenge. And you can easily resolve it if you accept that you know it's not what through reflective self-knowledge that we can have knowledge of ourselves. There's also a non-reflective way that's even more foundational that actually grounds both our self and consciousness. And at, at, at the level of non-reflective self-knowledge, there's actually no distinction between self and consciousness. The distinction and all of these things come into the view uh, when we kind of try to reflectively know ourselves when we use introspection and, and those kind of features are our consciousness. Notice that many people think the self only exists whenever kind of we start thinking, we start kind of doing philosophizing and so forth. But uh, there is already a kind of um, our consciousness before we even started the process of thinking. Um, what happens with the thinking is that you know, it allows us to kind of see other objects outside of us or even in our own mind and image ourselves and kind of make a comparison, posit subject, object. But I mean, that does not mean that before we started this process of philosophizing, there was no self, there was no I, there was no conscious. Of course there was. It's not like just switching on and switching off. Uh, otherwise, you know, this phenomena that I mentioned earlier, that dreamless sleep, state of coma and all of these other phenomena where there there is consciousness but there is no kind of reflex reflective awareness of, of our own conscious being as kind of self-aware as being self-aware so yeah so i i feel like you know when you have this category of non-reflective self-knowledge uh you are able to address and overcome the human challenge and able to kind of show um its limitations yeah now, one of the features of this book, which is uh, one of the most remarkable features of this book, which really makes it a towering book, but also, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm sure it must have been a very difficult thing to do, is that, you know, although this book is, of course, firmly situated in Islamic studies, um, goes between the early modern and the pre-modern periods, um, but um, this book actively engages and discusses many Western philosophers, like you were just talking about David Hume and Kant, of course, has a, has a right, major, yes. major role. But then you also go into Indic thinkers. And then you also go into, in, in, not in some kind of passing fashion, but really in detail. I mean, I've read this book so very recently. So in detail uh, to do with neurobiology, etc. Yeah. So I'm, I actually want to take a step back and just ask you, um, I, I mean, we don't have the time to go into each and every aspect here. Readers should do that. I would highly recommend that. But how did you decide this conceptual kind of um, decision of, putting uh, scholars and thinkers and traditions seemingly so sort of in operating in such different universes into conversation with each other and you know what uh, benefit does it give you to do this and what were some of the challenges that you faced as an author as a researcher in in this kind of an exercise yeah i think this is a great question and let me try to answer it in some fashion yeah um, so I would say that, it, of course, it was challenging. I needed to spend a lot of time studying neuroscience, working with, thankfully, there was a, a good neuroscientist friend of mine, colleague at Berkeley, uh, David Presti. Uh, but because I was, I had this background in science, because my undergraduate was in economics, we studied mostly math, and just an intense, intense interest in science right from the beginning. Uh, it was. It didn't feel like I was kind of to use CP Snow's famous phrase, uh, <laughs> two cultures or something. You know, the book that he wrote about science, the kind of 
divide that you see between science and philosophy and like science and humanities and so forth. Uh, so I, I never felt that personally. So as an author, I, it was always interesting. And then I realized that uh, initially it might have felt like, oh, it would feel like, oh, when you're talking about neurobiolo- neuro- neurobiological theories of consciousness and self or neuroscience of consciousness, uh, this might be completely different. But there is a substantial overlap. Uh, if you already think of the self as being a multidimensional entity, having all of these distinct dimensions, including the biophysiological, and you already see it in someone like Mullah Sadra and, and, and Plato and others. So, and, and Shah Waliullah too, they, they were also, when they were talking about the self, there's a lot on kind of, a lot of scientific um, medical knowledge uh, from which they're drawing and as, as discussed extensively. This is a vast tradition, all, stretching all the way back to Galen and, you know, and before Galen. And then mediated through Islamic medical tradition, and then you know how you know these mystical thinkers, philosophers, kind of felt like they're able to kind of benefit from this pure, quote unquote, pure scientific knowledge. Because of course, this conception of science as being a distinct category did not even exist at that time. But from our perspective, from our kind of contemporary perspective, you it's it's easy to see that when you read books on the self or philosophy or the so-called philosophy of mind. Uh, in analytic philosophy, there is a huge, there is a kind of almost, it, it's like, you know, philosophers these days um, mostly rely on the scientific findings on everything. There is a kind of deep, deeply entrenched naturalism and reductionism that is at work whenever, whether it comes to epistemology in general or it comes to topics in philosophy of mind, including self and consciousness. Uh, and so you feel like you have to know, because you read these philosophers, they themselves are influenced by this kind of scientific understandings, findings on the self and consciousness. And then you are curious, and then you read the books by uh, written by these neuroscientists, and they're making all of these extra big in, you know, claims about self and consciousness, saying, oh, in the, like Christoph Koch uh, saying in the last 2,000 years, there was no progress on these topics. So finally, it's time to kind of you know, recover, um, just wrench these topics, to use that kind of term, from philosophers and really kind of make it clear to the public what does consciousness mean and what does self mean and so forth, because philosophers have simply failed to kind of provide a satisfactory answer. So as you know, this is the kind of, it's part of the the naturalizing tendency, you know, that you see like uh, topics that were previously part of philosophy our humanities now are being like you know there, there is a whole bunch of sub top you know uh, sub disciplines within neuroscience called neurotheology, neuroliterature, neuroliterature criticism, and so forth. As if you know this kind of scientific experiments and just new some of these new findings in neuroscience or neurophysiology can solve problems or can help us understand Shakespeare or Mullah Sadra even, you know, all of these great philosophers in some magical fashion, or at least make, you know, can be very important. So I don't deny that they're not important. So that's the part. I, I do feel like the biophysiological part and the fact that neuroscience, people working in the neuroscience are now becoming more and more interested in these topics, it's actually a very good step. You know, there's a great deal to be learned from them when uh, they talk about the self-brain relation and so forth. But there are also some notable kind of uh, philosophical pitfalls and shortcomings that these neuroscientists, unfortunately, are not kind of, don't see, most of them at least. First of all, uh, neuroscience of consciousness does not consider uh, what we call first-person subjectivity. There's because of the, this uh, overwhelming emphasis on objectivism, like trying to know everything as an object and so forth. Uh, as is the case when it comes to kind of science in general. Uh, people think the self and consciousness can similarly be objective, ob- objectivized and kind of known, just like we know other objects and so forth. So I, I say that, you know, when it comes to Hume, you know, there's a problem because he's trying to know the subject, the self, as an object, and he, he's never never able to, he's, he's never successful. But when it comes to these neuroscientist people, they're not, they're not only objectivizing the self once, they're objectivizing it twice. First, when they're thinking it's an objective scientific investigation, and second, when they're tr- making an effort to 
uh, know the self through, you know, NCC, you know, neural correlates of consciousness and various other techniques and so forth. What they end up knowing are various states of consciousness, because consciousness is always the subject. There's no way one can step outside of one's subjectivity and kind of then objectivize all of one's thoughts, imaginations, memories, and so forth. Science itself presupposes, or all of these experiments are so obvious in a way, presupposes that we are all conscious in the first place, and that other being, other people are also similarly conscious. It's a, intersubject, it's a community of consci- consciousnesses. We are all able to kind of understand each other. We presuppose all that, and then we come to all of these experiments and design complex set of experiments, etc. So again, unfortunately, apart from few people like Francis Varela and people, neuroscientists who are actually working with some philosophers to kind of uh, understand consciousness, self, um, in a deeper way, most of these studies, they kind of provide us with a very reductionist paradigm, like kind of the self is ultimately an epiphenomenal brain and so forth. So, uh, and they're never able to tell us anything about all of these complex, for example, uh, features that we are able to uncover through kind of philosophical method. Like when I claim that there are different ways of knowing ourselves, reflective way and non-reflective way, and consciousness is multimodal, self is a multidimensional. How is it that neuroscientists are not able to tell us these facts about consciousness? They're, they're able to tell us a great deal about what happens in the brain when you know, our mind works, you know, performs a certain action, this and that. So I feel like, you know, when we engage these neuroscientists and uh, and uh, and these these disciplines from both philosophical again people think you know modern pre-modern is such a sharp divide pre-modern philosophers perhaps do not have anything kind of you know kind of mind-blowing important to say about them because these are supposedly modern topics so i i did as you might have noticed you know the, the very first chapter asked that question of whether the self is a modern invention because a lot of people to this day, in various fields, seem to think it is a modern invention. This idea of self-determination, uh, inwardness, inner depths, and etc. Unfortunately, even people like Charles, you know, philosophers like Charles Taylor, they seem to think it's a modern invention, so forth. So when and then the, I mentioned already in the Enlightenment ideology and kind of Eurocentric biases. So when we are able to overcome all this, we are actually able to see that these are these are not like uh, like. Um, figuring out uh, whether uh, heliocentrism is true as opposed to geocentrism. Those are different matters. This is matters of self and consciousness. And all of these traditions, Buddhism and various other Indian traditions, Advaita Vedanta, they have an amazing amount of profound reflections on these topics. And they're not going to, we cannot simply kind of uh, turn a blind eye to these literatures by simply thinking, oh, those are kind of relics of the past and so forth. And, and because when you actually study these things, we realize how complex these materials are and how actually helpful they can be when it comes to some of the most complex issues related to self and consciousness today, the so-called hard problem of consciousness and so forth. So I felt that at the end, it was a very challenging task, but at the end of the day, I felt like uh, it, it can be extremely rewarding because there are Already we have this artificial divide between science and humanities, as we always experience in, in our universities. This is an unhealthy divide. There's a lot to kind of, kind of, there's a great overlap, especially when it comes to these topics, and it only enriches our understanding. So, yeah. So two of the major protagonists that, that uh, are central to the concerns of this book, and uh, really we ought to be talking about each one of them, uh, one by one, and we again, uh, like the other thinkers and topics of the book, cannot do justice uh, to the to the extensive detail and complexity with which you engage uh, their thought. Uh, but they, of course, you've already mentioned them here, uh, Mullah Sadra and uh, Shah Waliullah. Um, so I'm going to ask you what I would preface is a slightly unfair question, which is to give you the 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 opportunity to to discuss because it's so extensive the multiple things that you talk about in relation to them but i'm just I, the reason i'm keeping it open ended is to provide you with the sense of what you think are perhaps yes, the most yes. important uh, take home points for our listeners to to take away uh, from their from their uh, from their work so yeah perhaps we can start with mullah sadr and then go to shavaliullah to keep the chronology uh, in in place uh, what aspects of their thought 
were particularly crucial to you uh, and that you examine uh, in this particular book in terms of theorizing the self? Right. So it's an intense theoretical kind of theorizing exercise, as you can see. And I would categorize this kind of works as reflective and constructive. Uh, but while engaging lots of historical sources, doing the kind of uh, required philological work as well. So I try to kind of balance all that, but I'm kind of also trying to address a modern audience, a philosophical audience outside of Islamic studies and potentially scientists themselves who are interested increasingly, I mean, the vast amount of literature that you have on neuroscience of consciousness, you know, uh, testifies to this. So I had to come up with kind of suitable vocabulary set of technical terms, like, you know, non-reflective self-knowledge and this and that. Uh, which would at the same time accurately portray um, some of the some of the core uh, arguments of this traditional uh, non-modern Islamic philosophers such as Mullah Sadra. So um, it's a, it's I mean it's a kind of multi-layered uh, exercise, but I felt like uh, I was able. I felt like in these terms accurately reflect. And again, it's not a kind of simple translation of what Mullah or kind of explanation of what Mullah Sadra or Shah Allah are saying and then kind of conveying that to modern audience. It's rather engaging philosophically with this historical material so as to propose a new new theoretical uh, paradigm about the self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I there are a couple of areas where I feel like uh, they're saying things that would be a extremely... Um, uh, helpful, perhaps, to people interested in this topic. So we, we're talking about non-reflective self-knowledge. And, and again and again, I was trying to point out how, when it comes to various theories of self coming from, let's say, uh, so it's something like social anthropology, social constructionism, or sociology in general, or you know, from the other end, like physicalistic theories, um, these kind of topics, this kind of uh, ideas, sorry, like non-reflective knowledge, would help us to see that uh, there is more to these things than uh, what than meets the eye in the in the beginning. So this, uh, but then it does not end there. I feel like if, if when it comes to both Mullah Sadra and Shah Waliullah, it's not simply epistemological questions of self knowledge and how do we know ourselves. It's rather the deep and the intertwining relationship between self knowledge and ethical cultivation. And that's where you know you can see how in 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 the model that I provided the spectrum theory, descriptive and normative can be so helpful because normative dimensions uh, you need, kind of bring together the ethical and spiritual dimension while the descriptive deal with more philosophical and and scientific dimensions of selfhood. But oftentimes you have people only overly focusing on let's say just the descriptive dimension of the self or the normative dimension. Uh, especially, let's say, in the philosophical tradition, especially after Descartes, uh, philosophers uh, do not even think that there can be kind of profound nexus between uh, non-reflective self-knowledge and, and self-cultivation. So, um, I mean, it, it should be kind of so obvious to people studying Plato and people studying, let's say, um, uh, let's say, uh, some, you know, you, 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 just random yoga chara philosopher and so forth. Um, so, but to us, it seems like after Descartes, uh, all when it comes to kind of having this kind of self-knowledge, it seems like all you need is a kind of functioning rational mind. And then you kind of sit by your fire and meditate and, and lo and behold, you come to realize that you know, you're rest cogitans as opposed to in a thinking thing alone, uh, as opposed to rest extensa, the extended thing. And, and then you're thinking how you relate to the external world, mind and the world, and all of these topics and so forth. So I actually agree here with Foucault. He, he, he was this, you know, because I studied Descartes for years, but I agree, uh, I kind of noticed this in Foucault as well, that, yeah, when it comes to ancient philosopher, you're reading Elcibides, and it's so clear, let's say, one of the Platonic dialogues, which some people say was not attributed to, it's not Plato's, but nonetheless, I mean, this theme runs in other Platonic dialogues and, and other philosophers as well. But after Descartes, you know, this idea that self-knowledge is not simply limited to, let's say, in today's kind of broadly speaking analytic philosophy, one's disp- dispositional properties or kind of standing attitudes or simply mental states like imaginations, thoughts, memories, and so forth, 
um, it's not at all clear. So today when people are talking about self-knowledge, they're thinking you know, it's about our mental state, it's about our standing attitudes, and et cetera, et cetera. But there's also what some other scholars say, uh, Socratic self-knowledge. And I kind of boil down all of these categories into what I call uh, at that point reflexive versus Socratic self-knowledge. So when it comes to a thinker like Mullah Sadra, it's absolutely important that we see when we are thinking of self-knowledge and we're thinking of ethical cultivation uh, at the same time, because without these ethical cultivations, there is no guarantee that one is able to know oneself as one is. And it's so clear in the case of Descartes, he's thinking, where does he get the idea that we are just a thinking thing? Uh, that's not philosophers, and in, 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 I mean, it can, it can be a philosophical argument, but you can see, like, after Descartes, Locke basically agreed Hume, tried to find problem. Kant also, of course, tried to refute that, and we are still struggling with that. But it's just a subjective definition that we are just a thinking thing and that we are substance. These are the categories that actually limit who we truly are. For someone like Mullah Sadra or for someone like... Um, Shah Waliullah, it's a, it's a very complex process, the way we come to know ourselves and the way we kind of think of ourselves as a self. It's, it's a multidimensional you know, entity and there are layers of kind of knowing and so forth. And at each stage, uh, various spirit, what I call, what, what people call spiritual exercises, such as meditation and this and that, they help us to kind of uncover a different layer of ourselves. And at the end of the day, it's indefinable. You know, of course, you, you would say, you know, you know People in Islamic philosophy, philosophers in the Islamic tradition, they kind of use the term rational uh, animal uh, from, from, the, from Aristotle to define the self. But that's only the most rudimentary definition of the self. Ultimately, the self cannot be defined. And paradoxically, it brings us back you know, closer to kind of some of these postmodern traditions, you might say. But ultimately, yes, it's you know who we are. It's a deep question that cannot be simply answered through just one philosophical argument or some kind of definitions as with Descartes and so forth. So I feel like these this are very important because sometimes when you have a fixed definition of who you are, or you can also ask whether that definition is different for men and women and those, those kind of questions, then it limits ourselves. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, in, in this book, I'm concerned with all the question of human flourishing, meaning in life, which you know, we're all concerned with. And you know, sometimes that kind of deterministic ideas of who we are can be uh, can be obstacles to kind of kind of flourish, expand, and 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 know the full extent of our possibility. Where I discuss the notion of the perfect human and self perfection in, in Bob Mullah Sadra uh, and others. But I feel like these are some of the areas where uh, Mullah Sadra kind of can be so important. And as for Wali Ullah, he also more or less agrees when it comes to how we know ourselves. He accepts that uh, there are different ways of knowing ourselves. And he, he also agrees with the idea of non-reflective self-knowledge. But in addition to all that, there are some distinct contributions that Shah Wali Ullah himself makes. And, and so I, I kind of argued how uh, when he was talking about self in relation to the subtle fields of consciousness or lataif, and pinuma, nasama is the Arabic word. He is able to kind of bring together, synthesize elements from Stoicism or Galenism, and then kind of and the Islamic medical traditions, Sufi traditions, and also bits and pieces from um, various traditions of Islamic philosophy. In do, doing so, you can see different currents of uh, currents of thoughts in Shavaliullah's conception of the self, which is again very complex. But at the same time, there are some notable innovations. Mm-hmm. So for example, for Shavaliullah, unlike Stoicism or Galenism, uh, the self being immaterial and the most subtle of all the forms cannot but be dependent on, on a body, which is also the most subtle of all the bodies, maturing at the finest uh, degree of subtlety and equilibrium. And he calls this subtle body uh, pneuma, that's what I was referring to earlier, which is the kind of intermediary between the self, which is immaterial, and the body, which is kind of material. So it's a very complex synthesis of, you can say, Aristotelianism and and Galenism. It's not purely materialistic. It's still talking about the self in terms of, you know, form and matter, uh, you know, hylomorphism and so forth. But then this is not exactly the Aristotelian hylomorphism because there is something in between you know, the subtle body that's not there in Aristotle. And also uh, the, the self being kind of immaterial, which is coming from, of course, new, 
you know, Platonic traditions mediated by Avicenna and others. So uh, these are all kind of interesting elements, and they just also show how, when it comes to the self, you know, there are kind of different theories. It's not just all Islamic philosophers, Sufis, they're just saying the same thing. Sometimes, because it's a spectrum, you can see some overlap here and there, but at other times, there are notable kind of differences and so forth. Just like in modern times, there are all kinds of theories of self, uh, even between two, you know, I don't know how people would categorize, like Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Albert Camus. I mean, both of them are, you know, people who say existentialist philosophers, yes, but, you know, Sartre has a very different, not very different. There are agreements in some places, but there are also differences between him and Camus, like you know, the absurd uh, that Camus um, proposes is not something that Sartre would agree with. So similarly, there is that spectrum when it comes to non-modern theories of self, and we need to recognize that and not think that, oh, this kind of non-modern or people use the term pre-modern. I feel like that's already kind of derogatory. So these traditions have a lot to provide when it comes to the topic of the self, which is something, you know, like everywhere. So yeah, yeah, I would kind of stop there <laughs> about this question, yeah. Now let's come to um, the the... The, the next key theme of the book, which actually is the title of the book, usually when we talk about the title at the sort of beginning, but uh, you uh, have a very interesting structure in the book that you, towards the end, come to uh, this key theme of the sculpting the self, uh, which is a very interesting category. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners again what, what this means, sculpting uh, the self, and uh, uh, how this exercise of you know sculpting the self, you make a very interesting point in the book, which I found very quite quite productive is that although it is focused on the individual but it need not be individualistic i was wondering if you could also talk about that aspect as you describe this this term sculpting the self right um let me think so i think i'll begin by trying to uh explain what do i mean by sculpting the self yes so it it comes from that distinction between descriptive and normative uh, dimensions when talking about the self. So this, when it comes to selfhood, it's many people think, especially if someone is coming from a straightforward neuroscientific or just simply scientific perspective, oh, it's it's a it's a kind of descriptive. You just describe what's going on. But while that might one might one can do away with that kind of exercise uh, when describing the structure of the leaf, for example, or some other object. But when it comes to self, you know, there is inevitably that normative dimension because of self-consciousness and because the way we're able to kind of turn back our gaze on ourselves. Uh, so I explain normativity in detail in some place, but the brief idea is that selfhood is something both kind of received and achieved. So people often talk, so I use also the term inspiration in, in, to talk about the self. It's like, you know, sometimes... Uh, it's like even when you think of the body and sometimes people are simply not satisfied with their physical shape, whatever, and they think, you know, they just go to the gym and then kind of improve uh, and exercise and, and get a better physical, you know, aesthetically pleasing shape or whatever. Uh, something similar is at work with the self as well. Uh, sometimes we look at, we take a look at ourselves and we're not simply happy with all that we are doing. And and we we still feel like there's a lot we can do to kind of make, something new of ourselves. So it's like when you're talking about the self, yes, there are kind of descriptive, there are description you can provide, how it relates to the brain or how the physical dimension kind of affects our mental uh, events and so forth. But there's also this normative dimension where it's to use some kind of anal you know, this analogy, so kind of work in progress or seed, I think would help the reader to understand. Uh, why I'm using the term sculpting the self. So if we think of the self, not just like, not something like an electron, but something like a work in progress, like something like a seed, then we can see that, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's a matter of achievement. It's a matter of what one can be or one, what should be, how, and, or how one should sculpt oneself. So, um, or according to these philosophers and the self contains um, the seed of spiritual perfection um, that can be realized by the therapeutic use of uh, various spiritual exercises. So uh, toward the end, I talk a great deal about meditation, 
and 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 self-examination and other related sp spiritual practices and how they transform the self. So the whole idea is that you know when it comes to the default setting of the state of the self, that so-called ordinary condition, uh, there's a lot that can be criticized. Or people can already see that you know that's not who they are. That's it's a question of who they should be and so forth. The should question brings normativity into the play already. So when as we begin to think what we should be, we think of different paradigms. Like how then you know all right this the criticism of the ordinary situation. Then what is the transformation paradigm and and what is the kind of result? And and so to talk about these transformation paradigms. You know, I, I felt it's kind of, I would use that phrase, sculpting the self, taking my clue from Plotinus, of course, you know, that famous passage, I think Ennead 5 or something, where he's asking us to be sculptors of ourselves and so forth. So that, I think it's a, yeah, I felt like that would be quite helpful, like how this therapeutic use of spiritual exercises can help us transform ourselves. So this is the key question here. It's not a question of describing the self or simply just uh, throwing in some possible remedies, but it's the question of real offering some real programs for transformation that would lead to human flourishing, that would make life uh, fulfill, in, uh, meaningful and so forth. Um, so that's where this term and this idea is coming from. And also, uh, I, as I said, so I mean, this is, of course, it's kind of anthropocentric. It's focused on the individual. And these authors, they're always... It's very clear, you know, they, whom they're addressing. They're always addressing the individual. It's the you that you hear in Arabic Persian most of the time. But at the same time, in, it's not the kind of liberal individualism which uh, someone like Tocqueville aptly actually described once as, you know, individuals confined to their little circles. So it's not individuals confined to their little islands uh, and circles and so forth. So actually, I and so that's why it's it's in it's focused on individual. It's anthropocentric, but I use another term not frequently. Perhaps I should have uh, the term anthropocosmic, because it's 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 much more than the individual. As we know more and more our more and more of ourselves, we come to see how deeply interconnected we are with everything else. So I felt like maybe I let me try to find one or two quotes from both Mullah Sadra and Shawaliullah that just so clearly. Uh, bring out this dimension of anthropocosmic uh, idea of the self. So, for example, Mullah Sadra at one point says, uh, talking about this anthropocosmic dimension as opposed to just being individualistic, he says, quote, it belongs to human to know everything, and his self has the receptivity for every form, since there is nothing without an equivalent within him. So all existing entities are parts of his self, and despite his oneness, he is all things. Uh, because his self is a microcosm, his body is a, sorry, his self is a macrocosm, his body is a microcosm. There's nothing in reality that is not under his subjection. And so it's also interesting, as opposed to other writers who always say the self is the microcosm, the world is the macrocosm. He actually inverts this image, but it clearly shows uh, the kind of end result of this process and exercise. Similarly, in, in Shahwaliullah 2, uh, there's this sentence, a uh, passage where he says, quote, um, when the coarseness of earthly existence in the Gnostic Aradif is replaced by the highest assembly, his identity, such as being the son of so-and-so and possessing a body of so-and-so disappears. So it's really, at the end of the day, saying, trying to say that this process of transformation should lead us to see that the profound interconnection between all things. And you can, I, I didn't talk about it, but it's actually related to my next project and the current ecological crisis and climate change and all of that. Because what happened, in, of course, in the 17th century, scientific revolution and Cartesianism and the divide between rest cogitans and rest extensor mind in the world led to this unhealthy kind of alienation of the self from nature and also the mechanistic worldview that simply you know posited the other including nature as simply in a machine like and you know and to this day you can see it you know the excessive you know quantification of things can again testifies to this so 
Yeah, so it's clearly not individualistic when you see this. It's focused on the individual, but it's kind of trying, it's supposed to be anthropocosmic, encompassing everything else. That does not mean that I become everyone, someone simply becomes the entire universe ontologically. Of course, that's not the case. As Mullah was saying, it's, it's the question of realizing the form of everything within one's being and receptivity because the self has the receptivity for every form. And this self ultimately opens unto the divine and kind of opens unto the infinity in a, in a way. So there is no kind of limit to what we can become. You know? and, and, and when you look at human, human beings globally, what people as a whole can do, what we have done, like the limit to, there, no one would say there is a limit to our knowledge. Some people might get tired, but there are lots of lots of people, they simply feel it's you know, their physical age that makes them tired. They don't feel tired knowing things or having more curious, even at age 90. And, and the amount of, you know, the variations in you know, the gifts that people have and how they met, it's simply, you know, it, there is something I think remarkable to notice about human beings, like what we can do, what we can be and so forth. But it's the question of actualizing what we potentially are. And, and so it's a very individual in process. Like everyone, in, I mean, I used the paradigm of the perfect human, Alinsan Kamil, and explained it in a, in, in a way that would be more relevant here. But so everyone is a potentially, is a potential Insan Kamil, but it's a question of realizing the specific perfections that would actually be helpful in one's life in a given situation. And that's where uh, these paradigms of transformation, this outlook can be helpful. And again, I argue, I also point out that there should never be just one paradigm. There are lots of other paradigms like, you know, um, like yoga, like uh, Chinese uh, philosophies and so forth. And, and one should not think that there should be just one global conception of the self that would satisfy uh, for once and for all, all the questions about, you know, meaning in life and human flourishing. I don't think that's, uh, that's what uh, one should be doing. But nonetheless, there should be some paradigms so that depending on who is coming from where, uh, people can still benefit from uh, these paradigms. Yes. So you've already touched on this uh, uh, a bit, Mohammed, but as we're coming to the end of our time, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit more about uh, your next project, what you're thinking about as your next project. Yes, so I think I should be very brief. Uh, but so the current book that I'm working on is about whether or not Sufi philosophy and practice, uh, especially as uh, it's it's articulated in this club, Ibn Arabi, support and foster an active engagement toward uh, the planet's well-being and, and, and also an ecologically viable way of life and vision. So I just started a course on religion and climate change last semester and also thinking of teaching it again next semester. So this is what I'm currently working on. And I feel like this topic of selfhood is somewhere there, but it's more like the application of that. Yeah. Sculpting the Self by Muhammad Farooq, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. Uh, thank you so much, Muhammad, for your time, for writing this really uh, yeah, incredibly dense but uh, exciting uh, book and for sharing some aspects of it, some uh, brief aspects of it with our listeners today and to be on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me here. This was my conversation with Professor Mohammed Farooq about his wonderful and brilliant new book, Sculpting the Self. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of NBIS. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.